So it's, very, it's a very great privilege to be with you, brothers and sisters, again today and to have this opportunity to open the Word of God. And uh, to be honest, whenever I, I stand up here, I often feel, in fact, every time I feel very inadequate to be bringing these, these truths to you um, because they are such weighty matters. The Word of God must be handled rightly, must be divided correctly. It's no small matter to open up the Word of God and teach it. I want to talk today about, following on from last week, how does God save sinners? You remember at the time of Ezekiel, he was shown this vision of a valley full of dry bones. And the voice of God asked him, can these bones live? What a, what a preposterous question. You saw a field of bones, a valley of bones, it would be a, a gruesome sight, wouldn't it? You know, the remains of dead men, perhaps warriors who were slain in battle. And of course, the answer to that question is, of course, these dead bones cannot live. When you have just bones, that's the, the, the bare remnants of a human being that is left. Of course, they cannot live. How is it? That sinful people like us, like me and like you, how is it that people like us, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, how is it that we can be made Christian people, that we can be made believers, that we can be made to live spiritually? What causes that? What miracle does God do to bring this about? And I think that is partly what we'll be addressing today, looking at. What makes... A sinful person who is at enmity with God, who is a rebel against God, who has transgressed the law of God. What makes him transformed into a new man, a new creature, who is able to relate to God and able to worship the Lord and willing to worship the Lord and to submit to him, to bow the knee to him? What makes that person, what what changes his affections from a heart which is uh, rebellious towards God? into someone that will willingly obey God and say, yes, Lord, your your word is good and I wish to obey you and be conformed to the likeness of your son. What can do this miracle? What can make these dry bones live? This morning, it's been given to me to talk about some very weighty matters. And these truths have become precious to me. They weren't always precious to me. When I was a young Christian... I remember sitting on a summer's morning in my parents' garden with my Bible out, reading the Word of God, and I was reading the book of Romans from chapters 9 to 11, and I found myself disturbed by reading those words. I'm not going to look into these passages today, but we'll look another time at these passages. But I looked at this, I thought, this is completely alien to my understanding of who God is. I remember talking to my mother. I said, Mom, are these things really true about God? I can't believe that. I've never heard this before. I've grown up in church all my life. I've heard sermons week after week. I've been in Sunday school. No one has ever told me these things. Now, of course, I'm sure I had heard these things over the years, but they bounced off me like a rubber ball bouncing on the pavement. Never comprehended these truths we're going to look at today. When I mentioned the words that I'm going to talk about. Some of you may be feeling a little bit shifty and a bit uncomfortable. And 
I want you just to bear with me, and I want you like the Bereans, who when they heard the word of God, they went and opened their scriptures to examine the word of God to see if these things were true. And my, my calling to each of us is to go and read the Bible and look at these things and ask yourself, is this really the word of God? Is this what the word of God is saying? So we're going to be talking today about the sovereignty of God in salvation. We're going to be talking about such things as election and predestination and God's appointing. Now, let me say this. These words are definitely in Scripture, and these words are in the Bible. And I will be citing many passages of Scripture today. And many good Christians and godly Christians disagree about some aspects of this. And you will find people, Christian people, more godly than me, who disagree fundamentally with some of these truths. And that's fine, because these people are godly people who love the Lord and love his word and sincerely hold different opinions, different views, different convictions. And I'm sure even in this room, we're quite a diverse bunch of people, you'd find a range of views concerning these matters. Not all of us would be exactly on the same page. And I want to say to you this morning, I think that's okay, that's fine. There was a time for the first 10 years of my Christian life, I also wasn't on the same page And it was a process of growing and understanding these truths. Once upon a time, the Lord Jesus was teaching the crowds of people in John chapter 6. And he taught them about his flesh, his, his body, given for the life of the world. And the people were perplexed and they were angry. And some of them said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? He wasn't talking about this particular matter, but they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from that time, many of the disciples, many of the people who heard Jesus walked away from him in disgust because they could not take this teaching, the teaching that he was giving them on that day. And Jesus turned to his disciples, the 12, and said, do you want to go too? And Peter said to him, he answered, Lord, where shall I go? Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, there's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go. We know that you are the Savior. We know that you are the Messiah. We cannot go anywhere else. Even though this may be a hard teaching, we cannot turn from you because there is nowhere else to go. What we're looking at today may be for some of you a hard teaching, hard to accept, hard to understand, hard to comprehend. Some Christians, some people would hear this and say, I could never believe in a God like that. I could never believe in a God like that. This is controversial because it it disturbs the received wisdom, the wisdom that we get from the world around us of how we think God should operate, how God should behave, and our, our, our kind of human notions of fairness, what is fair, what is not fair. But let me say this as well. It's important that we come to a settled position on this and say, Lord, I don't understand these things fully, but I'm, gonna, I'm content to let you be God. I'm going to be content to let you be God. And the Lord has given me peace about these things over the years. And let me say this as well. Some things in the Bible 
some doctrines are not appropriate for young believers. The Bible talks about babies in Christ. It says this in Hebrews 5, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The Bible says there, is, there are some doctrines, there is some truth which is difficult for young Christians to understand. Those who are new to the faith, who don't understand perhaps fully the basics of the faith. If you have a small baby, you do not feed them, I don't know, steak and chips, do you? You feed them food which is appropriate for their age, their stage of development. And some of this teaching is meaty, it's weighty, it's difficult to understand And it's not appropriate necessarily for young believers to be, you know, if somebody comes to me and wants to find out about salvation in the Lord Jesus, I'm not going to launch into these doctrines straight away. I'm going to start with the basics and build a foundation and build a skeleton upon which I can put flesh later on. So don't be perplexed if you you don't feel ready to receive this, you feel this is too weighty. Don't be disturbed by that, just be content that perhaps at some point down the line you will be ready to receive more of this teaching. In God's providence, the Spirit of God will take this and impress it upon you when you're ready to receive it. And remember, friends, that spiritual truth, doctrinal truth, is revealed by the Spirit of God. It's not just apprehended and understood by the human mind, by our our cognitive faculties. Spiritual truth has to be revealed by the Spirit of God. And I believe and I'm I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit can take these truths and and impress it upon the hearts of people, of Christians and believing people. So some things you may not understand today, you may have have a deeper understanding of later in your Christian walk. As the Lord teaches you, as he leads you, as he guides you, as he reveals these mysteries to you to some extent. But having said that, there are certain things which we will never understand as Christians. There are certain doctrines which are impossible for our finite minds to fully comprehend. There are lines which none of us can cross. We can never hope to fully understand the mind of God. We can never understand or fathom the wisdom of God. God has seen fit to reveal reveal many, many truths to us in his holy word, but there are many mysteries of which we are not told. Think about the doctrine of the Trinity. How can God be one and yet three persons in one, the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? There's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this world who can fully apprehend and understand this doctrine. It's far too weighty and mysterious for us. And these, these truths today about God's sovereignty cannot be fully wrapped up and understood and parceled off in some systematic theology. We can peep into these mysteries, but we cannot fully understand them. We need to be content about that and not be upset or distressed because we cannot fully understand them and fathom them. Be content to let God be God. Marvel at him wonder at him, and yet at the same time say there is a line which I cannot cross because I am not God. Deuteronomy 29, famous verse, says this, The secret things belong to the Lord, 
but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow the words of this law. In other words, the Lord, as I just said, has seen fit to reveal many, many things to his people, but not everything. The secret things belong to the Lord. What then is the right response when we peer into this mystery, this mystery of God's sovereignty at work in salvation? Is it not echoed the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11? Paul, this is, this is a doxology. This is Paul pouring out his praise spontaneously to God. Is that on the screen, are you? No, the next one. Thank you. Paul says this, Oh, the, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Paul doesn't go away. When he, when, he, when he looks into these mysteries, he doesn't go away angry at God or frustrated because he can't fully understand them. But he praises God. He praises God for his wisdom, the riches of his knowledge, and says, how magnificent is our God? How wonderful is our God? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could even hope to begin to understand the mystery of God and his ways and his purposes? Who has been his counselor? Who is in a place to give advice to God and say, God, you should do this in this way and not do this in this way? Which is an awful human tendency, isn't it, of, a, of the human heart warped to tell God how he should behave according to our own notions of justice. The Bible says that God is, he is sovereign and he is not influenced by human behavior or any other external factor. He is, he is in himself perfect and he, he acts according to his own purposes and his own will to achieve those purposes to bring glory to his son's name. And I, I pray this morning, if nothing else, we go away wondering with this, this you know, awesome wonder about the greatness of our God and say he is a mighty God, he's a wonderful God. How deep is his wisdom and how rich is his mercy? The question today, uh, I want to come back to the original question. How do sinners become believers? What does it take for a, for a wicked man like me or a wicked person like you? Because we're all wicked. We, we looked at that last week. All of sin are full short of the glory of God. What would it take for one of us to become a believer? Well, the word of God makes it very clear that God himself is the instigator of this process. God himself is the God who saves people. God is the one who takes the initiative to save people, to draw people into his kingdom. Let's look at this verse, Anya, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 7. This is from the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, and this is the Lord speaking to his people, his chosen people. For you are a people holy to your Lord, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth, on the face of the earth, to be his people, his treasured possession. I didn't put this on the screen, but following that, the Lord says, did, did, did I choose Israel because you were more numerous than other people? Did I choose you for any particular reason? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God chose them, he elected them, to use that term, he elected Israel by grace. He chose a man, Abraham, of all the people of the earth, to be the father of many nations. 
we see right back in the time of the Old Testament, God electing, God choosing a people for himself to be his holy possession. Ask yourself this question, did Israel choose to be God's people in any sense? Did Abraham volunteer to be the vessel which God would use to bring about his purposes? In no sense whatsoever. It was simply a sovereign act of God's grace to set his love and affection upon a particular man and his descendants to work out his purposes. To be a people holy for the Lord. It says here clearly, doesn't it? The Lord your God has chosen you. The Lord your God has elected you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. Now, if that is the case, which clearly is the case, and the Old Testament is full of these references to God choosing out his people and examples of his sovereign acts to, to save people and draw people into his orbit, into the, to the work that he's doing amongst the nations. Is, if that is true in the Old Testament, is it not true about Christian people? For we now, we, we are the people of God drawn from many nations Is it not true also that God is the one who draws people, who chooses people, who elects people and makes them his children, makes them his holy people? I haven't put this on the screen, but it says this in 1 Peter in the New Testament. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and God's special possession. Talking to Christian people, Peter uses that same language. He says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people called out from among the nations to be distinct and distinctive and holy and set apart for God's special purposes, for his own pleasure. So the Bible says very clearly that God is the God who chooses people by grace, not not according to any merit, but unconditionally. He calls them and chooses them to work out his purposes. The Bible also says that God calls people. Let's look at God's calling. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, please, Annie, on the screen. This is that wonderful occasion on the day of Pentecost where Peter preached to the assembled crowds of Jews who'd gathered from all over the world for the Passover. And he preached the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. I want you to look at this with me. This is what Peter advised them to do, called them to do, when they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So what, what then shall we do? How often do we hear that these days? People are so convicted by the Holy Spirit, they say, what shall I do to be saved? Tell me what I must do. Well, here we see that the answer that Peter gives. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Who was being called? Whom was being called on this occasion? Well, in a sense, the gospel call, the call to repent and believe in the only saviour was going out to all those crowds of people that were listening. Any person that had an ear to hear could have heard the words spoken by Peter and the apostles on that day. The the urgent call to believe in the Saviour. 
you could say they had an external call. A call had been given. Every person could have heard that. But then look at this verse here. It says, this is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a sense of God's calling. Or isn't God already calling people through the preaching of the gospel? Yes, he is. But there's a sense of a different calling here. That the Lord our God is calling a people to himself from amongst those people that hear the message. Theologians call this the effectual call. The call that has an effect. The internal call. I want you to understand this very carefully. When a hundred people hear the gospel. Imagine if I went to, imagine if I was invited to the Amex Stadium before Brighton's next home game. It would never happen. Imagine if I stood there with a microphone and I was given the opportunity to preach the gospel to 30,000 people. Every single person there would hear the words because I would preach the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. People would hear those words. That call would go out to every single person in that stadium. But imagine if Ten people out of that vast crowd heard in a deeper sense. They heard that call and responded by putting their trust in the Lord Jesus, by repenting and putting their faith in him. Who has been called on that day? Well, in a sense, everyone has been called. And yet, in a deeper sense, in a true spiritual sense, those people that heard and responded to the gospel are those who truly hear the call of God, the internal call, the call that brings salvation, that brings them into the kingdom of God and makes them his children. I said this last week, why on earth would, what makes people different when there's a huge crowd of people, they hear the gospel, why do some respond and others reject that word? It cannot be because of any good in them, those people that respond. It must simply be a work of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Impressing the gospel upon the hearts of men, causing repentance. The God calls. God calls all men. It says in the word of God, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is God's revealed will, that God wants all people. He calls all people to repent and believe. And yet at the same time, we know from observation and from the word of God that not everybody heeds that call, but some do heed that call and are called in a special way into God's kingdom. Who amongst us who's a Christian could be arrogant enough to say, I'm a Christian because I I myself instigated that process. I myself was obedient to God. Yes, of course, we must respond to the call. And sometimes it appears that we are the ones who are doing the seeking. But yet, on a deeper level, we must understand and confess that we are not the ones who are instigating this process, but rather it is God himself who is drawing us and making salvation possible. Then let's look at God's appointing. So the Bible uses this word, I think only in this place, in this context. In Acts chapter 13. When Paul and the apostles preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Sorry, my voice is going. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Very interesting, isn't it, that word appointed? What does appointment, what is appointing mean? What does it mean to be appointed? It means to be set apart for a special purpose according to the foreknowledge and sovereign purposes of God. Does it say this? 
When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of God, and all who were intelligent enough for eternal life believed. All those who were able to understand with their cognitive faculties believed. Does it say that all those who were psychologically predisposed to religious tendencies believed? Does it say that all those who were emotionally distressed and needed a crutch to help them through life believed? Did it say that the weak-minded believed? Did it say that all those who wanted to say the sinner's prayer, repeat those words, believed and were saved? Of course, none of these things are true. It says those who were appointed for eternal life believed. Whatever else took place on that day, there's a sense that God in his sovereign mercy, had appointed some to believe and others not to believe. How else do you explain this idea of appointing? This makes it clear this is not merely a human choice, not merely a human decision, but rather something that God himself has ordained at a time in the future prior to this, that some should be saved on this day. You may have heard the word predestination being used. It's in the Bible, it's in Ephesians. Predestination simply means to ordain beforehand something to happen. And in terms of salvation, it means that God himself has, in a sense, well, not in a sense, has decided beforehand that some should be saved, that some should be called, that some should be appointed, that some should be chosen. Now, I I understand for some people that might be a tough sell to believe that, but that's what the word of God says, as, as I understand it. But if this is true, when when did God do this work? When did God appoint people? When did God choose people? When did God elect people to believe? Well, turn with me, we can't avoid this verse. This is a very pivotal verse in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. This is another spontaneous outburst of praise from the Apostle Paul. Praising God for his mercy. Just look at these spiritual blessings. Look at these privileges that Christian people enjoy. It says here, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. If you're a Christian here today, you can say, by grace I am holy and blameless In the sight of God, I have been justified. I have been declared righteous because another, the Lord Jesus Christ, has taken my sin upon himself. That I might be declared righteous in the sight of God. But also, the privilege extends to adoption. God takes the sinner. He doesn't just make us neutral. He actually welcomes us into his family through faith in Christ. He adopts us as his own children with the privileges and rights that sons and daughters have in the kingdom. That's what God does. He adopts us and makes us members of his family. 
When did God decide to give us these blessings? Well, the word makes it very clear, doesn't it, here? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The Bible makes it very clear. I think it's very clear. I don't, don't know how else you can explain this. A, a natural man, a simple man reading this, can't fail to see that God, in some sense, has chosen, has ordained these things to happen, not only before we were born, but before the world was even created. And just ponder that for a minute. Before all of this came into being, any of this came into being, before angels were created, before the earth was created and the stars and the seas and all the the wealth of the natural world we see around us, before that, God himself ordained a people to be his chosen people, to receive these privileges, the rights of sons, through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a verse in Romans 9 which says this, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That is a weighty truth, isn't it? Dear friends, even even the ability to believe in the Lord Jesus was granted to me, granted to us, by the mercy of God. That's a very humbling thing, isn't it, for the human ego, for for human pride, to say that actually it doesn't depend on me wanting this enough, but rather on God, from first to last, being merciful to me, a sinner. If you're a Christian, ponder this. Before the world was created, God set his love upon you. God knew you, and God planned in advance to make you one of his children, to bring you into his kingdom, to give you the gift of faith. I wonder how that makes you feel. I think it's a very, very precious truth. Now, there are some who don't agree with this, and perhaps there are some in this room who are going to hound me out of the building afterwards, but I can only preach the word of God as I understand it. And if I'm wrong, the Lord himself will make that clear. Some object to this and say, well, God doesn't actually choose people despite what it says, but actually God, because he's, he's transcendent and outside of time and eternal, he looks through the corridors of time into the future and foresees those that will choose him. So when it talks about the elect, when it talks about election and choosing, actually God doesn't do the choosing. We choose God, but because God can see the future, in a sense, he chooses us because we've chosen him or something on those lines. Why is it so difficult for us to accept that the ultimate choice belongs to God? That's his prerogative. That's his right to do that. Why is it the human heart is so hardened towards God that we want to feel that we are in control? There's a verse that says this in 1 Peter 1. To God's elect... Dear friends, the more you read the Bible, you're going to start seeing these words cropping up absolutely everywhere. That's what I did when I was a young believer. This is is on every page of the Bible. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And some people pick up on this word foreknowledge. Ah, there you go. 
It's not that God chooses people, but God foresees. He knows what's going to happen in advance. So we can't talk about him really choosing people or electing people. It's simply a matter of God seeing, foreseeing what's going to happen in the future, which, of course, is true to to an extent. God can see exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and in 10 years' time until the end of time. But we've already seen, haven't we? We looked at this last week that... It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I've said this before. I'll say it again to the day I drop dead. We do not choose God. I did not choose God. God chose me. God opened my heart. I was not seeking him in truth. I could never have sought him. I heard the word of God a million times. It bounced off me until that day when God worked in my heart and I started to understand spiritual truth through revelation of the Holy Spirit. When it talks about foreknowledge here, it's not just talking about cognitive knowledge, the ability to understand facts, the ability to see certain things. When it talks about God's foreknowledge, it's something far richer than this. When it talks about God's foreknowledge, it's not just saying that God can see certain facts, that certain people will believe in him. We've already already seen that's impossible. People don't just choose that for themselves. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. God foreknows people, not just facts about those people. Look at Romans 8, verse 29. Another New Testament incident of this word being used. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In the Hebrew Bible, the idea of knowing someone is far more potent and deep than just knowing someone just to chat to or knowing someone, knowing about someone. The idea of knowing someone is a very intimate concept. In Genesis 4, we are told, I mean, in, in the King James Version, which I'm sure you all read all the time, which is a great version, actually, a very accurate version of the Bible. It says, Adam knew his wife. Now, does that mean Adam just knew, oh, I know my wife, I know my wife. You know, I've, I've known her for 12 years. The word know there is talking about intimate relations, intimate knowledge, heart unity, relationship. In Genesis 18, verse 9, just to to draw out a few examples of this, God says that he has chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the word of the Lord. The actual word there is that is known. God has known Abraham. Now, God knows all people in the world. God is all-knowing. So God knew all the people that were alive at the time of Abraham. When he says, I knew you, I know you, he's talking about special relationship not just about a general knowledge of the existence of Abraham. In Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. That's the same idea of this knowing. God knew all babies that were being born at that time, in a sense, didn't he? But when he's talking about knowing Jeremiah, he's not talking about, I just knew the facts that you were being born. He said, I knew you in that intimate relational sense, and I set you apart for my purposes before you were even born. (laughs) 
People have said that this idea of knowing in the Old Testament is virtually synonymous with the idea of loving someone. Deep, personal, relational knowledge. And I, I believe this carries over into the New Testament. When it talks about God's foreknowledge, it's not just saying that God knew the facts in advance that people would choose him. I'd stake my life on it that it doesn't mean that, just that. It means that God himself set his affection and his love upon certain people by grace from eternity before the world was created. And he knew them in that intimate sense, that relational sense. That's how I would answer people that say, well, God just sees... That's, that's how I used to try and explain it. It's, well, well, God couldn't possibly be choosing anybody. That's not what God does. He just loves everybody. So I, I try to excuse it by saying, well, God just looks into the future. But it just doesn't weigh up. If you read the whole Bible, the scope of Scripture of God who elects and saves and he does the work of salvation and draws people in to his kingdom. I know these are deep things. I want to talk about the mystery of God's sovereign choice. So if God chooses a people for himself, is it just a random choice? How does God choose people? Is it like a lottery where you, know, you don't know who's going to win because God selects people randomly? Is it arbitrary? Is it just for no particular reason? But I don't think it is. God is not a God who deals in ran- randomness. But according to his own mysterious purposes, which we cannot understand, God has chosen these people. And it's very important that we realize this is unconditional. It's not based on anything that he sees in us. We Christians are not here. We're not Christians because God saw something good in us and chose us because we were any better than anybody else. I remember my nan, my, my grandmother, telling me about the war and how she was evacuated from, from the east end of London. And she, they went out, all these kids, city kids, out to the countryside. They'd never seen a cow before, things like that. They tell all these stories. And she told me about how they used to stand on the platform when they arrived from London. And local villagers would come and they would look at the evacuees from the city and they would size them up. And they would say, oh, I, I, I'll have this little girl. She's very sweet. She's well-dressed. She's well-spoken. But that snotty-nosed little boy was left on the platform. And he was like the last, last pickings. I remember at school, we used to play football. And all the boys would line up, and there'd be two captains, and they would pick their teams. And obviously, the best players got picked first. For some reason, I was never one of the first to be picked. I can't work out why that was. But God's choosing is not like this, where God just chooses the nice ones and the beautiful ones and the good ones and the best ones and the the, the most impressive ones. And God chooses all sorts of people. And there is no human logic that explains why certain people are believers. Look around us, look at the Christians you know. It's such a mixed bag of people. Educated, uneducated, all sorts of backgrounds, it's not based on anything in us, not based on any good in us, not based on anything that God sees in us particularly, just by sovereign grace. That's why you're a believer. All of us alike have broken God's law. All of us alike have sinned against him, every single person that's ever lived. None of us seek him. 
all of us were heading for sure and certain judgment. All of us would have continued on that path to hell had God not graciously intervened and taken some of us off that path through the preaching of the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you today as well that God has a definite number of people as well in his kingdom. God has ordained a set number, the elect. In his love for his son, God has given him a people. Jesus says that in John 6. Is that on the screen, Anya? John 6, did I put that one up? No, I didn't. Jesus said, "All all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 37. There's a sense that there is a specific people that are given to the Lord Jesus by the Father. These are my people. These are the sheep that I will lay down my life for. And every single one of those sheep must be gathered into the fold. And those sheep will be protected and kept because they are my sheep, known from the beginning of the world, before the world was even created. God has his people. God has his elect, chosen by grace. And let me say this, there are many, many of those people out there who are, I, I hope and pray, unless the Lord comes back today, there are many people still to be added who are not yet believers, but who, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from eternity. That's what Revelation says. It says there's a book of life. I don't know if it's a literal book, but there's a record of all those who are of the elect in that book. And every single one of them will be in that book. And the Bible says nothing at all about people opting out of that or falling away from the elect. Those elect are sealed by the Holy Spirit and will persevere by the grace of God. Jesus talks about that. He says, no one will be able to snatch my sheep from my hand. I want to just draw a few conclusions before we finish. First conclusion is this, and it's my my request to you, be open to this doctrine. I know this is a tough listen for some people. I know, as I said, there are some Christians who will completely disagree with this, a kind of knee-jerk reaction against it. Let's all of us go openly and honestly to God and say, Lord, what, what what does your word really say about this? It may seem paradoxical, it may seem impossible to understand. In fact, it is is impossible to understand, humanly speaking, how men can be responsible and yet God is sovereign. Those two things can seem to be opposed to each other, man's free will and God's sovereign grace. The Bible teaches both those things. We're not going to reconcile it. But we need to trust God, we need to be open to this. And if if you're angry with me today for preaching this, Please go look at the word of God and pray about this and say, Lord, what is your word really saying? Are you the God who chooses or is it completely a human decision to believe? Completely down to us. Second point is this, don't overanalyze it. I can imagine some non-believer sitting here today, not yet a Christian, and say, my goodness, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? What about others in my family? Are they elect? Only God knows those who are part of his chosen people. 
if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been born again by his spirit, if you're trusting in him as saviour, you have good reason to believe that you are part of the elect. We must not get hung up about this. If you're not yet a believer, don't go away and panic and wonder, am I part of the elect? Will I be saved? Just All you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you hear his voice, believe, repent, and turn to him and be saved. There are some people here that need to repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Don't prevaricate anymore. Don't put it off. He is the only saviour. If you hear his voice, respond to it. Be reconciled to God. There's a guarantee in the word of God. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. You call on him. So don't worry about, am I part of the elect? Am I not part of it? Is my my neighbour part of it? My friend at work? Just preach the gospel. And believe the gospel if you haven't yet believed. Next point, Anya, please. Don't become fatalistic. The Bible does not say that we are robots or puppets or chess pieces. The Bible says that we we, we make real decisions as people and our decisions have consequences and that call goes out to all of us to repent and believe and we should do that. We we are responsible for doing that and if we don't do that, we are guilty for not doing that. God is not stopping us doing that. So don't be fatalistic. We're not just, as I said, not just machines that God is just controlling. We do have in some mysterious way, the ability to make free choices. Go as close to this doctrine as the Bible will allow you to go. Peep into this mystery, but don't go further than the Bible allows you to go. When I was a small boy, I used to stand on the beach and look at the ocean, look at the sea, and feel very small and very insignificant when I saw that great wall of water ahead of me. And this doctrine of election, of God choosing, is just like that. You, you can paddle in the shallows, but you cannot go any deeper. You just have to marvel and say, what a, what a great thing this is. What a great God we have. And I'm content not to try to understand every single aspect of this, because I cannot possibly hope to do that. Some of you, and this, this is exactly what I was like when I was uh, back to my 21-year-old self. I was like, how can God be so unfair It sounds terribly unfair that God would choose some and let others go to their destruction. But the Bible says, Abraham says to God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Bible time and time again affirms God's justice and God's grace. And as I said earlier, it says this, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There are verses like that to balance out this doctrine, that the the general call goes out to all the world and God calls people to be saved. And yet on a deeper level, he is the one who is drawing certain people away from their life of sin to himself. And if, if you think God is unfair, go and wrestle with God. Open his word and pray that God will give you a peace, the peace that I now have about this doctrine, the ability to rejoice in this doctrine. Another point is this. Be reminded of the God-centeredness of the gospel. Sometimes I'm I'm thoroughly sick to death of man-centered preaching, which puts man as the sum of all things. The gospel is not primarily about us. It includes us. We're, We're included by grace in the blessings of that, but it's not primarily about us. Too often we try to appeal to people's felt needs and appeal to people's egos. 
But this reminds us that God is God. And the gospel is about a people being one for Jesus Christ, for his glory. And we desperately need to get back to that as churches, the God-centeredness of our Christian lives, the God-centeredness of the gospel. It starts with God and it finishes with God. And by grace, we're included in that. But the emphasis is not on us, but on him. And this makes us feel very small and it puts us in our right place and it puts God in his right place on the throne. Another point I want you to learn today is this, be encouraged to persevere in evangelism. Some might hear this doctrine and say, well, in that case, if God's going to save a people for himself, why on earth do we need to be involved in this process? Why do we need to pray for the lost? Why do we need to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ to the lost? Because God will save a people for himself anyway, without us. It's absolutely true that God does not need to use any of us. He could easily win the elect without using us. But the Bible makes it clear, I believe, that he uses human means to achieve his purposes, his church. And therefore, we ought to pray for the lost and pray for those who preach the word and for missionaries and evangelists and for ourselves, for opportunities. That we might proclaim the gospel and that by God's grace, some might be saved. That is the means that God uses, the preaching of his word, not gimmicks, Not emotional manipulation, but the preaching of the word of God. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen as the saviour of all. That is what we preach. When we preach that, we know and trust that God will draw his elect to himself through the preaching of the word. As I said, the elect are out there. There's there's elect people, I'm sure, in this city. Perhaps people you're praying for right now. Colleagues that seem utterly opposed to the things of God. Who knows, they might be written in the book of life already. And at a certain point, they'll hear the gospel. God will open their hearts. They might be saved. Maybe not. We don't know. We're not given that information. We're not told who's the elect. Let God be God. Let us do what he's called us to do. And be confident he will save a people. It said in the book of Acts, God said, I've got many people in this city. I'm sure I trust that God is many people in this city. And we're here in obedience to God to reach those people with the gospel. To bring them in. To gather the harvest. And the last point is this. Is it the last point? Have I got seven points or six? Seven. Okay, thank you. Be comforted, but be cautious. I'm aware that I've gone very quickly through this today. We only have a short time. Romans 8, verse 30 says this. Sorry, the other verse, please. Oh, yes, there. Sorry, it's all together. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The comfort for the true Christian is that if you're predestined to salvation, all these blessings and privileges will be yours. There's a chain, a chain that you cannot break. God will do all these things. He predestines you before time. He calls you through the preaching of the gospel. He justifies you. He declares you holy in his sight. And in the future, when the Lord Jesus comes in glory, you will be glorified. Your body will be raised imperishable, incorruptible. You will have a new body 
a Christ, you know, a resurrection body, that is yet to come. So this, this encompasses the whole sc- scope of human, well, even before human history, from the beginning of time right to the future when the Lord Jesus comes again. And this is an unbroken chain. You cannot have some of these privileges and not the rest. If God has predestined you, he has called you, and he, will, he has justified you, and he will, at a future point, glorify you as well and save you on that day. And isn't that a great comfort for the Christian? And if I have been saved, if I have been called, I know that my Lord will finish that work he started. He will glorify me in his presence. God has chosen us not just for salvation, but for all of these things. God has called us to be holy and blameless in his sight. But look at this other verse here in 2 Timothy. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Dear friends, God has not just called us to be holy and blameless in the sight of God, to be justified, but he's also called us to walk in holiness. He's called us to a holy life. The sure evidence that you are truly converted, that you're one of the elect, is that you you are being conformed to the likeness of Christ, that God is working holiness in you. Two steps forward, one step back. But you should be growing in holiness and walking in holiness. And that is why it's a terrible travesty when people call themselves Christians but practice wickedness and approve of wickedness. All of us are still sinful, all of us struggle, but there should be a measure of holiness, a life marked out by obedience to Christ. So in one sense, this doctrine of election is very comforting because we know that we are secure in Christ And yet there is a warning here as well. God has called us to a holy life. If you're not living a holy life, how do you know that you're called? What evidence is there that you are truly a believer? So we should be cautious, not say, well, I'm I'm predestined. I'm one of the God's chosen people. Whatever I do, I can live like a monster. It doesn't really matter because I'm predestined. God won't won't kick me out. But the truth is, if you live like that, you, you probably are not part of the elect at all. And you need to repent and put your faith in Christ. The last point, and perhaps the most important of all, is this. Thank God for his grace. The praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. If we come away with anything at all today, it should be that we say this. God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. He sets his love upon people who don't deserve it. He doesn't just make it possible for them to be saved. He fully saves them. He brings them in, into his flock. Completes that work for his glory, for his namesake. And I hope this morning, when you read these verses, you yourself are inspired in some way to praise God and say, thank you for saving me. And if you're not yet saved, put your faith in him and be saved. Trust in him today. Let's pray.